0: Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we come before you with full hearts in gratitude and thanksgiving for this beautiful new facility that you have given us, for these some 20 acres on this beautiful lake named after the land of ancient Philistia, called Palestine, to which most people refer as the Holy Land. We thank you, Father, for a lonely, elderly widow lady who was never a member of this church but who through watching the television program came to a decision one day and called her lawyer and asked that her estate be willed to the Evangelistic Association and the Church of God International. It is because of that dear lady that we stand in this beautiful facility because the money that was being spent on television and other things, the regular cash flow that you were sending us to conduct your work was not sufficient to do all that we needed to do and at the same time to purchase this property and to build this building. So Father in heaven, in her memory, we now dedicate this building to your service, to your work, to your church, to your people, to all who may enter it, We ask that you would hallow this building, that you would put your angels about it, that you would cause us to use it to every good and proper purpose, that perhaps hearts can be touched and people can become converted, convicted of sin, and walk down a sloping concrete ramp into beautiful Lake Palestine and wash away those sins in the rite of baptism. That the things that will take place in this building over the years to come will be happy and good and decent things. That we can always rejoice in it at the Feast of Tabernacles, annual holy days, during our weekly Sabbath services, sports events, summer camp. That it will become a nucleus and a hub of activity around which family life in Christian fellowship will revolve. We ask these things and ask you to bless it and give you our heartfelt thanks for it In Jesus Christ's name, amen. One year ago today, we did not own this property. We would drive by on the bridge out here across beautiful Lake Palestine and look over here and realize it was deserted that it had been a recreational vehicle park an RV park That there were about 50 some RV pads as you can see up there There was an old brown pavilion down here and up next to it was an old ramshackle mobile home with trash all over it was a very trashy looking piece of property we began asking some questions about it we found out it was for sale that had become one of these properties defaulted from a previous owner was in the hands of the FDIC. We made a bid, they countered, and we accepted their counter immediately. And very shortly, even before we had gone through closure, we had a work party of the local Tyler Church. And people even from as far away as Dallas and Fort Worth, a lot of you were here on that day, came out. And I remember the picture we had of an army of people sitting astride there, riding lawn mowers. And We began to cut down the weeds and clean up the grounds and to prepare for that first summer camp that we had last year in a very rough and a crude environment. The little gray painted rather rough looking dormitories you see of course have no heating or air conditioning only a ceiling fan and lights. The lavatories that we have now completed inside this building are the first really modern and good ones we have although there are some facilities down here in the pavilion. And last summer we went and bought some used restaurant kitchen equipment so we could feed and take care of the youngsters who came and then eventually when the plans were completed we broke ground for a building which was built for us by the builder who is here with us today, Mr. Leonard Guthrie, of New Way Building Systems he builds barns, industrial buildings and complexes, I suppose things like service stations and other types of buildings I'm glad he could be with us today to enjoy the very first dedication ceremony and to see you people from as far away as in the case of some of the ministerial educational training program who are here represented today from Connecticut and from California. So we have about 30 ministers and their wives and some other non-ordained who are here taking a series of three days of classes, in case you didn't know that, and we were in here with classes beginning at about 8.30 this morning in a classroom in this building. A very great deal has been done in God's work in a very short time. In about two months, we will enter our 14th year as the Church of God International. When My wife and I, a handful of close friends and close relatives, incorporated the Church of God International on July 21, 1978. We had no idea what was truly in store for us. We occupied a little East building on South Loop in Broadway, on Southeast Loop, I should say, in Tyler for about one year. And about a year later, a new building became available on South Broadway. We leased that facility for several years and then found a small piece of property on the top of the hill outside the city limits on the south side of Tyler opposite the Cathedral and the Pine Cemetery. Some of you may have come directly to this building and do not know where that building is. I hope you will ask someone that can inform you. And when you drive back, if you go past it on South Broadway, it's immediately opposite the cemetery there on the very top of the hill where you first come over the hill on the main highway going into Tyler from the south. We've been in that building now since, I believe, 1982. Back in about 1982, the income for the work was 1,040,000. From that time to this, we have grown three and one-half times larger. My father was very fond of saying to me in the later years of Ambassador College, Well, Ted, this is no popcorn stand we're running here, because he was so proud of all that had been accomplished and all that had accrued and been developed and had been built and how we had grown. Well, we're very pleased, very blessed, and very proud, in the sense of the right kind of pride, because it is mixed with humility and thanksgiving for how far we have come in a comparatively short period of time. Our television program, scattered around the United States is reaching several millions of people. Our mailing list, had we wanted it to contain dead wood, could now perhaps be 500,000 had we wanted to keep people on the list that were no longer really active with us. We are conducting church services in approximately 75 local congregations and study groups or fellowship groups around the country. We have, I understand, 13 new ministerial candidates. We are hoping to open up summer school or summer classes for ministerial educational training next summer. We're already very encouraged by the group that is here represented for these three days of ministerial training very encouraged to see that some of them are as young as 29 even some youngsters 51 are there are here and we're very encouraged by the quality of individuals that God is beginning to send to his work mr darton i believe that with this summer program next year we will really be able to see what is out there in terms of potential future leadership for god's church and that hopefully by that falling the following autumn we can launch, at long last, Imperial Academy that has existed as a corporate structure on the books down in Austin, State Secretary's office, for several years. I incorporated in that name because I was the one that originally chose some of those names. I'll take you back and tell you about a scene that took place on a a leased bedroom upstairs when my father had sold our house in Eugene, Oregon, was intending to move to Pasadena, California i attended eugene high school in eugene oregon and my father was in that upstairs bedroom talking to my mother about a college he wanted to start He was puzzling over what the name ought to be in my office on south broadway is my nineteen forty seven high school annual in that annual is the club that i recalled with its motto ambassador club for you are ambassadors of christ And it was a Christian men's club in Eugene High School in 1947. Our high school colors were purple and white. I said, Dad, how about Ambassador College? I was 17. Dad said, Ted, that's a great idea. And Ambassador College it became. I said, how about the colors purple and white? Royal purple for royalty and white for righteousness. Purple and white became our colors. Later on, I think they added a touch of gold. Who knows? Maybe we'll adopt the same colors. Nothing wrong with that. I frankly don't remember whether I suggested Imperial for Imperial schools or whether somebody else did. I I would have to have my memory refreshed. But I know it's a beautiful name, and it is not incorporated by anybody else as Imperial Academy. It'll look like 1A, won't it? I.A., Imperial Academy, I like that, number 1A or I.A. And hopefully, by about a year and a half from now, we may well see a big 16,000 square foot office building when you drove up the damaged driveway where some of the highway trucks parked over on the side of the concrete and kind of knocked a hole in it, which they paid us for, and we'll get around to repairing. Give us time, as they say, Rome wasn't built in a day. A few years from now, you won't recognize the place, but hopefully by about a year from now or a little later, we will be moving into our new office building, 16,000 square feet. That entire top of that knoll is going to be bulldozed down this way to be leveled. That building is going to be over 100 feet long, isn't it, by, I think, about 60 feet wide. It's going to be quite a lengthy building and will house all of the activities of God's work that we have so sorely needed because we have outgrown our facility on south broadway we were commenting today i was nudging ron dart walked into that building back into the classroom back here and saw how full it was and said well we outgrew it already very first meeting we're having in our classroom it isn't big enough well eventually we had to build three separate temporary buildings in back of our office building and then we had leased seven different little storage buildings around town a hundred dollars a month apiece now the building next door to us houses all of that equipment material at seven hundred dollars a month we don't have to spend for lease costs and that we were able to amortize the indebtedness of putting up that building you're sitting in a building that cost hold your breath eighteen dollars a square foot some of you are shaking your heads well you know that you can't build a home for less than approximately forty dollars a square foot that it's almost unheard of to build a structure for that kind of money. Now, Mr. Guthrie, with his new way building system, actually constructed the shell, that is the slab and the posts and the roof and the metal exterior. Our own men here, Mr. Robert Klepfer and all of our own people, with their own hammers and nails and a lot of other people that I want to talk about briefly, did the rest of what we are looking at here today. I want to acknowledge the following people, all of whom have either donated materials or given a great deal of their time, I know one of whom is not a member of this church, but the first man I will mention donated all of the marble, it's kind of reconstituted marble, or maybe a synthetic marble that we have here and there throughout the restrooms, lavatories, kitchen, and so on. Mr. Jerry Ashcraft, James and Fay Akins, Dwight Cavan, Carlos De Hoyas, Oscar De Hoyas, Leo Dubray. Bill Dunham, Roy Geddes, who've been out here every day just working like a beaver. The Hallbrook family, Dewey and Zella, Donnie, Ronnie, and Jake, Gene Halley, Chuck Hibbard, Chester Hollis, Dennis Hughes. Chester Hollis, I think, was a gentleman that came over here from way back in the southeast who is one of our members and shot the elevations and gave us a plat plan. Am I mistaken? Is that the correct person? I'm mixing him up with someone else. John Johnson, Robert and Sandra Klepfer, Michael Mitchell, John Moore, James Polite, Mr. Bob Tackett, Mr. E.B. Vance, Joe Vienna, Bob Widmer, who helped us get virtually at cost our air conditioning system and was up here, found out that about two of them weren't, weren't turned on quite, so I think it's getting cooler minute by minute as we sit here, and he was adjusting it. There are a number of others whose names I could mention and, of course, all of the Tyler Church for the work party and those who helped in last summer's program and a great deal else that has gone in to giving us this beautiful facility in which we can now meet. This is like a dress rehearsal for the Feast of Tabernacles. I think we're going to be able to seat about 650 to 700 people in this building. If we need to, we can move our TV cameras and sound equipment perhaps to one side, and by putting a two-tiered step-up little bit of a platform, put tiers of chairs upstairs and probably have another 150 or so up there if we need to for the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm very much looking forward to hearing a festival choir up on this stage, to hearing some beautiful special music, to coming here in the middle of the Feast after I begin down in Lake Panama, or I should say Panama City Beach, and then Myrtle Beach, and then come through here before going on to the west coast at the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's going to be kind of unusual to stop by and sleep in my own bed in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't know if that's biblical or not. Maybe I'll be told, Ted, you shouldn't do that. You're supposed to pitch a tent in your backyard. But uh, anyway, we'll be coming back here in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, I don't want to go on and on about it. I just want you all to realize how much we do appreciate that lady that I mentioned in the prayer and all of the work and the effort, a lot of volunteer people have done because many of these people I mentioned uh, forwent profit on materials. There have been other church members who have uh, contributed an inestimable amount of labor and materials that we probably haven't mentioned, and I wish we had a complete list of everyone here to mention, but surely in the publications and in the International news when we will publish a lot of the pictures, we'll make sure and make up for that slight in case we missed anyone. So, welcome everyone to this special inaugural Sabbath. Thank you all for coming from so far away. Many of you chartered buses. People are here from Houston, from Waco, from Austin, from over in Texarkana and Shreveport, and perhaps from further away than that. And I'm very glad to see you all here. I'm looking very much forward to the rest of the service. Now, if Mr. Larry Watkins will come back up for one more. And we have some special music and the sermon.
1: We got a little bit of a quick count uh, in between. We have 350 here today, unless a few more have wandered in since that time. Three more, they say. So we have 353 that have wandered in for the services this afternoon. So, would all 353 of you please rise? And take your hymnals, and singing out on page number 62, Hallelujah, Praise God, this absolutely glorious and beautiful building we have today and for the services. Page number 62, Hallelujah, Praise God. Sing
2: out now. Sing unto the eternal, sing your praises to him your trust not in water for in them is no help hallelujah praise God eternal shall reign he shall reign for all ages our king and our God sing unto the eternal give your praises to him he it was who
1: very much. Please be seated. Now this afternoon, before the sermon that will be given to us by Mr. Ted Armstrong, we're going to have a unique opportunity which hopefully will be repeated in the future. Special music brought to us by Mr. Von Dart, Mr. Bronson James, and Mr. Ted Armstrong.
0: We're going to sing a hymn. <laughs> Number 35 in the book, in case you want to follow along. But we thought we would just uh, get together and kind of ad lib a little harmony here, if you don't mind. I need thee every hour.
3: Lord, no tender voice like thine
0: Hitting those two giant men how do you suppose I feel between them I said just like a dime between two nickels that's that story my dad story my dad told me one time I couldn't help it I couldn't help that because my father came up with that story about a little bitty sawdog guy named Percy somebody walking down the street between two great big people and he was a multi-millionaire and pretty snappish and he was asked how do you feel walking along between those two giants percy and he said just like a dime between two nickels no i don't mean that the way you might take it that was fun i enjoyed that and i know that uh, bronson and ron dart enjoyed that as well maybe we can do that again sometime we got any uh, irish tenors around i mean we need a we had to reject one song we wanted to do because we didn't have a fourth part and we figured the one we did we could kind of tuck it up a little closer and have a little tighter harmony So we chose a hymn out of the book, but we were going to do a different song originally. In 1967, in Pasadena, California, in the upstairs bedroom of my father's home, a group of us evangelists had gathered around my mother's bedside, as we were doing very frequently as she lay in the process of dying. We didn't know that then because we believed, wanted to believe, hoped, fervently prayed that she would be healed. I don't know when she came to believe she might not make it, but I will never forget the time when we had stood around, perhaps unnecessarily long, on one morning, about seven or eight of us. We had been in my father's study. We had all gotten down on our knees around his coffee table, and one by one, all of us for five or seven or ten minutes apiece prayed audibly until all of us had prayed all the way around that table then we got up and went into my mother's bedside my father anointed her for probably about the fifth or sixth time and we stood around chatting with her and talking she looked up and she said fellas don't worry about me I'll be okay you just go on and do the work I guess she felt an awful lot of important time was standing around her bedside and she didn't want to be responsible for us being away from our jobs. So she said, I'll be okay, you just go on and do the work. I grew up as a little boy hearing about the work. In a little office in Eugene, Oregon, I watched my father as he would hold up a stencil against the window for some outside light and with a stylist, actually etched with his own hand the words in flowing script that said the plain truth. I remember helping my mother when I was six, eight, nine, crank an old hand-turning mimeograph machine. I used to delight in working that machine because it had a big thick brush in it. You had to take a cap off the back of it where it had a little bit of a reservoir of metal and fill it with a black ink. The ink came through the brush through holes in a kind of a drum like a uh, circular or cylindrical drum, over which you snapped a kind of a blanket of a pad that would soak up that ink, and on top which you then stretched that blue stencil that my father would type. And the typewriter would cut the little bits and pieces out of the stencil. And the old mimeograph worked that way, way before the day of the copy machine. I used the slip sheet, as it was called. I used to take the little cardboard slips as my mom would crank the machine and slip one in between each printed page of the publication as it came off to avoid them smearing together while the ink was still wet. One time I remember, I must have been ten or eleven, they finally were able to pay me. I worked for five cents an hour when I was probably in about the fourth or fifth grade in the work. My mom was mail receiving, mailing the coworker department. My dad was the preacher and the business manager because that's all there were in the office. Sometimes my two sisters, my mother, my dad, and me, and my brother Dick. It was pretty much a family organization at first. All of my life, I've heard about the work. I remember my father writing about the work, quoting all the scriptures out of the Bible. Jesus said, I work hitherto, and my father worketh. And he would quote how, I work a work in your days, which you will in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. And now Christ said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. For the night cometh when no man can work. What is the work? What is this work with which you now are acquainted? Almighty God has always worked in one way or another on this earth we say that we are engaged in a work of witness and warning what was the first work of which we read in all of the Word of God It's in the first chapter of Genesis isn't it where God said let there be light let the dry land appear let the living creature begin to inhabit the seas or walk or creep or fly over the earth and he created man We read of great patriarchs who actually went before the time of Noah when finally God was doing a great work through a man named Noah, which was at once a physical work and a spiritual work. Noah preached while Noah built. Noah worked with ads, draw knife, perhaps chisel and mallet, perhaps with the kind of spikes and nails they used back at that time, with scaffolding. He was a contractor, and Noah was over a lot of people because they were drawing, probably behind their beasts of burden, huge logs from distant forests, though he may have located the building of the ark nearby, a ready wood supply. And there were families who had been laboring and earning their keep on the building of a huge vessel, larger than this building, not a whole lot larger. But a good bit larger than this building and even larger in cubic size the biggest vessel to ever sail the seven seas until today of modern steamers much much bigger than the nina pinta santa maria or the mayflower or other ships of the discovery days and the explorers that we read about in our history books god did a great work through noah and there were families literally generations of them because 120 years is a long time to where the great grandpa could sit around in an evening and talk to his great grandchildren well you see right now how far we are up in the air up there and you be careful up there now youngster because you're over 80 feet up on the side of that big hulk but your great granddad remembers when we laid the keel why i was here when noah was down there asking god's blessing when we first put that big old keel together and those people had picnics and they danced and they sang they got out their instruments and they had their relaxation and they had their days of rest which noah insisted upon because he was a sabbath keeper and when they got their pay whether it was in some commodity of exchange or unit of exchange that they traded between them or more likely perhaps in terms of food cattle clothing skins things that they could utilize they gathered around and had their entertainment they lived and worked ate and slept and breathed in the shadow of the ark they watched it take shape out there and for all practical purposes somebody's cornfield a huge structure the time came when Noah would get up on a scaffold, probably about 40 feet above all of these hundreds of people out there, and say, 62 years to go, and God is going to destroy all of mankind if you don't repent of what you're doing. Noah would stand there and tell sodomites, rapists, thieves, muggers, robbers, murderers to repent of their rotten sins. He would point to what was happening all around out there in society. Cannibalism, Satan worship, every kind of horrible crime and sin you could imagine. The Bible describes it as so bad that God says the absolute extermination of all mankind is the only thing that is going to assuage my wrath. I am sick to my heart that I made man. I'm going to drown them all like so many rats. Now we might not like what I'm about to say, but there was only one man on earth who was righteous before God. That is at once terrible and wonderful. It's terrible that there could only be one who was righteous before God. It's terrible. That his preaching was such a failure while his work was such a success or was his preaching a failure well no it wasn't let me tell you why because every one of those people had received a tremendous witness and when the day came that he entered the ark and it began to rain and it rained for three days and then seven days and then nine days and finally when those people were clinging to flotsam and jetsam like the starving people down in Bangladesh recently when a hurricane came along and the water was actually beginning to buoy up the ark and it was floating and they were screeching and clawing up at the sides that were so precipitous and slick that they couldn't get up I doubt that Noah was outdoors in the rain gloating saying I told you so I imagine he was battened down with a hatches closed and inside and probably praying to God that this thing will float but his preaching wasn't really that much of a failure, was it? How many thousands had to hear it? How many people went by in the distance and said, "Yeah, there's old Nutty Noah over there. Dumb old Nutty Noah. That freak has been out there for 37 years, building a stupid boat, 197 miles from the nearest lake." Now you put that one down and remember that. Don't go near that guy. There were probably people that scared their kids by saying, "You behave or Noah's going to come and get you," because they thought old muddy Noah who would be building an ark I mean if you were down there with a dry dock if you're down near the lake or at least near an estuary or a bay somewhere and you were laying a keel where you thought you had some skids under it could get to the ocean it might make sense but where Noah was but you see what Noah warned them about came to pass and God destroyed this earth is that a work was God doing work He worked at creation and on the Sabbath day he rested from all the work which his hands had made. That was God's work, God's handiwork, Adam and Eve and all the creatures on this earth. Then came the time of Noah's witness and Noah's ministry was one of witness and warning. And Noah did a work. It involved building. Now, you know, already in a couple of little places, just a little whisper or a rumor somewhere here I know not where from. There are people who are so locked in to an old syndrome of contempt and hatred for the parent organization and shame on you if you are, that they would shake their heads and click their tongues and say, well, here we go again, building things. Isn't that pitiful? There are people who are in that attitude. Why well, we didn't need to build this building. We should be sitting out here in the sun on a bunch of stumps and me trying to preach to you with a fire ants calling up your leg, right? Isn't it a little nicer to sit in here in air conditioning? A carpeted, beautiful building. People shake their head. Well, there they go again, just like his father. He's building things. Now he wants to build an office. Build this next building. Next thing you know, he's going to start a college. You watch. I warned you. You're right. I'm going to do it. If God gives me the power and the strength. I hope someday to be standing in this auditorium. Or maybe a nicer one somewhere, and shaking the hands at a first graduating class of Imperial Academy. That's what I hope, what I dream. When I first came to Tyler, I was invited down atop the bank building by a group of multimillionaires and practically everybody who is anybody in the Tyler vicinity, including the chairman of the boards and most of the banks, the president of the Cotton Belt Railway, two sheriffs from two different counties around, multi-millionaire oil men one of whom hosted the meeting, and they asked me, Garner, Ted, what are you doing in Tyler, and how may we help? I gave them a little speech of my practical immediate plans, then my long-range goals, and then my hopes and my dreams. My immediate plans were to open up an office, get on radio and television, establish a Tyler mailing address, and begin to write and produce literature produce radio and television broadcasts and to see this work begin to grow my long-range objectives really were just more of the same to publish a magazine to publish booklets to open up local churches to establish regional festivals of tabernacles i said in my hopes and dreams department way out there somewhere in the dim future i hope to start a college because the reason those gentlemen invited me to have that meeting and introduce me, as it were, to all the powers that be in Tyler, Texas was because those same people had been at a meeting only months before when we had announced that Ambassador College was going to open and was going to enlarge and was going to be at least 1,200 students with about 17 fully developed majors. We were going to have everything from the School of Dentistry to Flying and Flight Mechanic and so on. We're going to do deal with animal husbandry and agribusiness. And we had invited all of these people, and Mr. Waddy Wise, Watson Wise, the man who hosted this meeting, walked up to me in front of all of these people, made a little speech, and handed me a check for $12,000 that he said he wanted to become the beginning of what he called the President's Scholarship. And he said, Mr. Armstrong, I want this to go toward the education of one of the poorest, neediest students that you invite here. Stood there and told all of these dignitaries from Tyler, Longview, and all over the country. What a wonderful place Ambassador College was. He said, look at these kids. There's not a hippie, there's not a druggie, there's not a criminal, there's not a a thug among them. Look at the way they act. Look at the way they walk and talk. Look at the way they dress. Isn't anyone proud of these youngsters? We need people like this here in East Texas. I was the president of Ambassador College at that time. And because of that example, he was setting We knew that other people were going to follow his example and contribute and begin to help Ambassador College expand and to help that scholarship program for the people who couldn't afford it to come to college. But because I made a call to a lawyer in my father's employ, talked about separating out the Pasadena budget from the Big Sandy budget, dealing with local vendors, local architects, local contractors, and local banks in getting lines of credit or loans to put up buildings I wanted a four-story administration building right in front of the bird sculpture we wanted permanent dormitory buildings at least double or triple what we have now we needed more classroom buildings and to get rid of the old temporary ramshackle ones and the old restrooms out on the grounds and build new and we could have easily have done it with our financial capability at that time my call that I intended doing something that dramatic with regard to the lines of credit enjoyed by a gentleman whose name I will not besmirch this pulpit, nor this room with mentioning in this house, was the beginning of some conversation back there among other people that I knew nothing about at the time but found out to my chagrin later. And within a matter of a week or two, after that huge, big, Banquet up there where these people walked along a table in that dining hall where our cooks had actually even made castles and houses out of bread. You never saw anything like it in your life. And they were really excited about Ambassador College. There were headlines in every newspaper in a four or five county area of what we were going to do. And this was in 1977. 1977. Well, it's a long story. But within a matter of months, I received a letter containing four blatant lies that my beloved father, who accused me of those things, never even bothered to pick up the telephone and say, Ted, I can't believe it. Did you really do this? And refused to talk to me. From then on, I was never able to talk to my dad from one scene that I have had cause to relive in my mind many a time at his doorstep in Tucson, Arizona. My wife and I came over here with our very meager life savings, and it was so meager that it would have been none at all except that she had urged me that spring in the festival when I was going to give half of what I had, about $9,000, which I received from book royalties from the real Jesus in hardback, because I would received about $17,000. I was going to donate 50% of it to the church. She said, don't make out the check today and put it into the offering. It will confuse the Holy Day offering do it separately when you get back to Pasadena we never made it back to Pasadena at least in that configuration before I got the axe so had I given that in the offering at that day we would have started over down here with but seven thousand dollars no home no nothing just seven thousand dollars as it was we had enough to put a down payment on a small home to lease a small office and actually begin with the help of other members who were very generous, one of whom in particular gave a sizable amount to us and wanted to remain anonymous and always has. And I began on WOAI San Antonio in late 1978. I went down and rented from a friend of mine, Robin Hood Bryans, here in Texas, who has a studio made out of a garage where he has the recording facilities. And I remember finding a board in his garage and putting it with a little bit of a drapery to protect the keyboard of a little spinet piano and then sitting there and hunting crickets that were making noise in the garage because we thought that the crickets would feed into the microphone. I remember too that very first day that I was going to do a one-half-hour radio program and how I approached that microphone after several months of not doing broadcasts, having received that letter, having lost 12 pounds in 10 days, doubled over with pain, called a doctor to ask if I had perhaps ulcerated because of the agony and the trauma of what my wife and I and all of us in our family had to undergo. When you vomit with anxiety it is really painful. When your stomach literally just turns over and you cannot hold down food, you have no appetite, you can't eat, it is really painful. And you know you're traumatized and you're going through what is called stress. Well we went through all of that stressful period of time God blessed me with that first program. It was just like old times. And greetings, friends around the world. This is Garner Ted Armstrong, but I couldn't say with the good news of the world tomorrow. So I just said, have you heard this or that or whatever about the gospel? And I was off and running with a program about the kingdom of God and wrote my very first article about world peace is possible, 1978. Little by little, people heard where we were. The mail began to come in, in little tiny bits and dribbles, three, five, and ten letters at a time. But eventually we had enough to get on two radio stations, and then three, and then five, and then ten, and finally we were on 54 radio stations. Until we realized that radio is for all practical purposes, unless it is merely supplementary to television is dead in the sense that you cannot really grow or build very much on radio alone because the really huge audiences as you drive by a community and see the tv antenna sticking out of people's roofs are sitting there in prime time in front of entertainment watching television every single night and all weekend and so on i needed to be back on television i'd done my first television broadcast in 1955 at age 25. it was time to get back on television Well eventually we got on a couple of these minor little cable networks but we ended up on Superstation WGN. I guess I made a mistake because I opened up the Bible one day on a program and was going through the first chapter of Romans about they receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat which is old King James English language for they the homosexuals. Suffering AIDS and like diseases are merely receiving the natural consequences of their filthy acts. Well, I strongly suspect and will not identify that one of their hierarchy up there at WGN was a homosexual. Took great exception to that program, kicked us off WGN. 274 cities and towns that had been receiving my broadcast suddenly went black. I was back where I started from. Zero radio, zero television. Well, we may have had uh, TNN at that time or USA, I think, but it was really of no consequence. Little by little, we went out and began to spot by television time here and there around the country and gradually built up to nearly 50 television channels all around the United States, usually in smaller or middle-sized cities because of the cost factor in big cities you can pay ten twelve fifteen thousand dollars for a half hour I think if I last heard it was something like forty thousand dollars for one half hour over WTBS of that entire cable system that's an enormous amount of money but I am very blessed to be able to tell you that last year we finished the year with three point six million dollars including the dangler in state estate uh, 3.2 without it and That represented about a 13 to 15% increase over the preceding year. The year before that, I think we had close to a 17%. But the point is that every five years, this work has been doubling. Now, we're doing what we call a work of witness and warning. And I want to go back a little bit to refresh your memory. Up until 1989, for over 44 years, this world had labored under the tension of the Cold War. In the very depths of the Cold War, consistently from the 1950s and onward, as I published in this magazine, including about 54 separate quotations from Plain Truth magazines and other publications and sermon tapes going back to the early 1950s, I won't take the trouble to read them all to you now, but they're in the magazine and they are very, very powerful. And they say over and over and over again, Germany is going to reunite, Eastern Europe is going to come out from behind the Communist bloc. A United States of Europe with Germany at its helm, dominating that union, will emerge as a third power bloc in Central Europe. Communism is not going to go to war, Russia, against the United States. Yes, they are our enemy, but it's possible to have more than one enemy at a time. There is no such thing as a CIA document that has ever reached the president's desk in the last seven administrations that has contained these warnings. There is no FBI document. There is no study from a think tank. To this day, the planners in Washington and our own secretary of state hail the creation of a United States of Europe and the reunification of Germany as a good thing. Yet today, in the break between my class and this sermon, on a documentary on my television set while I lunched at home. I saw a statement, heard a statement made, that the neighbors all around Europe, especially Eastern Europe, around Germany, are becoming again very nervous and very concerned about future German intentions. That was today. I have a magazine, The New Republic, that reached my desk just this last week from Lieutenant Colonel Dan Bigby down in Florida that brought it to my attention. Shocking article about the potential of new security arrangements. Is anyone here aware of what I said when the Gulf War broke out? That I said one of the major byproducts of the Gulf War is going to be, remember, a change in the German and the Japanese constitutions, didn't I? And I've got it in print to prove it. I was hearing this last week of many Americans now, and even American politicians and planners that are so short-sighted they don't seem to understand what they're urging, that were very miffed and very put, up, very put out against Germany and Japan because they just sort of sat in the sidelines and gave a few nice little statements, but they didn't contribute other than a little bit of money, a lot of money in some cases, but did not contribute military forces to the war in the Gulf. And they're beginning to argue already whether or not Germany can now begin to deploy German soldiers all around the world in other foreign wars without a change in the Constitution and beginning to talk about it. I cite to you that I did not get the idea about Eastern Europe coming out from behind the Iron Curtain and Germany reunifying and looming large at the helm of a United States of Europe out of a cereal box. I didn't gaze into a magic ball. I happen to know because I've researched it down to the tiniest little bits and scraps of evidence I can find that our people, our English-speaking people of Britain and the United States, and I do not speak of the melting pot that we have become, I talk principally of the Caucasian people and there is not even remotely a whisper of racism implied in that statement, but that we are a part of the lost ten tribes of the House of Israel that when you clearly identify who are Ephraim and Manasseh, and you clearly identify in the pages of the Word of God who is that nation who is going to punish Ephraim and Manasseh in the Great Tribulation, and you consistently preach and teach for literally 40, 50 years, Germany is going to loom large once again. We will be at war with Germany once again before too many more years are out, perhaps shortly after the end of this century. And that, that message has never deviated, never changed. And that I can gather fifty-four quotations which are but the tip of the iceberg. There are literally hundreds of them. I was only able to publish about fifty-four of them in this magazine. Saying a United States of Europe is coming. Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, all of them are going to come out from behind the Iron Curtain. Saying that in the very depths of the Cold War, when Nikita Khrushchev was pounding his shoe on the platform at the United Nations saying we will bury you or when the Kennedy Cuban Missile Crisis sent many Americans scurrying home to fill their bathtubs with water or investigate whether they had enough food in their backyard fallout shelters and we were saying out of our pulpits there's no need to worry about war with the Soviet Union it's not prophesied was that a work of God is this a work of God We come from the time when God worked in the day of Noah to drown the entirety of the human race that was wicked and evil and filthy in his sight that he couldn't stand them and he decided to just wipe them out just like those helpless people in Bangladesh where you saw the animal and human bodies intertwined as the water gently just moved their bloated bodies lying there by the thousands and the scores of thousands. Now they think maybe more than 130,000 human beings lost their lives. Well, in the great flood of noah's day it is conceivable because we used to do this in my class by just extrapolating out and figuring maybe 25 years on the average for a young couple to have four children or three children or whatever literally we came up with some figures that were so staggering you wouldn't believe it that from the time of adam to noah there could have been four and a half billion people on this earth i don't think there were i think there were probably many millions but there might have been 10 20 50 million at least Whatever there were on this inhabited earth at that time in the pre noachian period, God killed every one of them. Then God calls Abraham and reaffirms his promise to Isaac and then to Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And then we read of God constituting his nation, and again God was at work. He caused the great work to be done through Moses and Aaron at the original Passover and the Exodus when he destroyed militarily and economically, broke the back of the most powerful nation the world had ever seen, whose monuments to this day evoke awe, just absolute shock at their massive size, the incredible workmanship. I've been inside the great pyramids, have seen the king and the queen's chamber, You cannot take a playing card or a razor blade and put it between huge, great, big pieces of granite, some of which are larger than the entire stage behind me. How do they get them so perfect? How do they put them in place? A contractor today could no more build the great pyramid than he could fly in the air without benefit of wings. It would just be virtually impossible for him. During that day, God broke the back of that great nation, called his own people, And that was God doing a work. It was not without a witness, because Moses and Aaron went daily before Pharaoh and said, this is God's doing. Let my people go that they may go into the wilderness to sacrifice unto me. And if you look very carefully in the first chapters of Exodus, the purpose for letting them go was to observe that Passover anywhere but inside of Egypt. But because God worked it out in such a way that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, They observed that first Passover as a type, as a sign unto us, in the land of Goshen. And the great tribulation of their day fell all around them while they were in situ in their own homes. They fled after the death of the firstborn, after the murrain on the cattle, after the lice and the frogs, and after all the waters turned into blood. But because God made a difference between them and the land of Goshen, no plague came nigh their dwelling. All the plagues fell while they were yet in Egypt, and then God took them out, and they began to observe the Passover. I want to turn to 1 Samuel 8 and verse 7 to show you that after the time of Moses, along came Joshua, the first of the judges. And following that time, they finally decided they wanted to be like the other nations around them. There was a tall champion, the Bible says, was head and shoulders above every other man of that kingdom at that time. In 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter, beginning in verse 7, because Samuel was very angry about it and was very angry with the people because they had rejected Samuel, or so he thought, God said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. You would be amazed in institutions, corporations, churches, military organizations, families, it matters not, how much effort is expended over this age-old question. Just who is in charge around here? You would be amazed down through history at how much has gone on over that question. Who should rule? Who should be in charge? Well, Samuel went on to say, verse 9, Howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. He will take your sons, verse 11, military conscription is coming, and appoint them for himself and his chariots his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. He will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties and set them... To plow, it means his ground, and they will reap his harvest. It'll be like a, an autocracy, an absolute monarchy, where these people will be sweating and laboring and plowing and raising corn, but it won't be their corn. It'll be the king's corn, the king's ground. And to make instruments of war and instruments of his chariots, he'll take your daughters to be confectionaries and cooks and bakers. He will take your fields from you and your vineyards and olive yards. But you see, It said in chapter nine and verse two that Saul was a choice young man and a handsome young man. Goodly means handsome. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier or a handsomer man, person, than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher. We once estimated that Saul was probably somewhere close to nine feet tall. There were some pretty big Israelites back in those days. He was a giant of a man, handsome, probably striking blonde. And when he walked about among the people, they looked at him as if he was a god. They said, "Oh, wow! Give us someone physical to look to." There's dowdy old Samuel. Look at those old stained robes. Getting a little portly in his old age. I take a little soup in his beard the other day. We don't need Samuel. Look at Saul. We want Saul. So Samuel was told, "Listen to what they say. They're not rejecting." You, they are rejecting me, God's rule, God's laws, that I should not rule over them. Probably you've never looked in the Angus Bible Handbook, which gives a graph that actually shows how God grouped the prophets around the impending captivity of Judah and the impending captivity of Israel in actual reverse order. Israel went into captivity first. It's interesting to do that because very many of these prophets of the Old Testament were actually contemporaries and God sent many of them to warn Israel about what was going to happen and they were warning not only the leaders of the people but the people themselves and they did a work of witness and warning they said you are going to be taken into captivity your daughters are going to be made into prostitutes to serve the enemy army your sons are going to be made into slave laborers your eyes are going to be put out and be dragged into prison And they told the kings and the rulers exactly why it's because you have gone after Baal. it's because you worship those things which your hands manufacture it's because you are worshiping idols because you have broken my sabbath because you've abandoned my holy days because you won't obey god's ten commandments and you are guilty of idolatry and of worshiping other gods and god always appealed to them repent please repent turn to ezekiel 33 and see the motives of God's prophets none of them volunteered time and again God's prophet said not me Lord I'm too young Isaiah said I'm a man of unclean lips they said I can't do this I'm not fit I'm not qualified I don't want this job they were drafted they were forced to do what God told them the greatest example of that of all is perhaps Jonah who ran from God's charge and only facing the most obnoxious imminent death in the stinking interior of a fish's belly, prayed out of a figurative sheol or hell, as the Bible says, and God caused the fish to spit him out. And then he went and gave a witness to whom? Gentiles. How much more will God witness to his own people? God was going to intervene in the case of Nineveh. It wasn't an impending army. It wasn't somebody else. God was going to destroy that place just like Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin was so great in his sight. They repented. They fasted. They caused their animals to fast. Ezekiel never enjoyed that kind of success. And we see the example of Jonah. I won't turn to that and read it. But even though he was forced to do God's work, he did so with a vindictive attitude, took pity on a plant, but had no pity at all to spare for those people. He wanted them to get... They're just desserts. He thought, I've been put through too much. I've had to undergo too much suffering, so I hope they get what's coming to them. Jonah's attitude was not perfect before God. In the 33rd chapter of Ezekiel, beginning in verse 2, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say unto them, when I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coast and set him for their watchman, if he sees the sword come upon the land, he blows the trumpet and warns the people, Then whosoever hears the sound of the trumpet and takes not warning, if the sword come, a symbol of military activity, of armed aggression, and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, he took not warning. It's his responsibility, his blood shall be upon him. But he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, doesn't do the work just lies down and is derelict in his duty. And the people be not warned if the sword come and take any person from among them. He is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. In January of 1990, when this publication came out, the publication I watched my dad scratch out holding up a stencil to the window to put plain truth on a mimeograph piece of paper that began in 1934 in Eugene, Oregon, which grew to become a black and white magazine, a duotone magazine, and then a slick, full-color magazine, and finally grew to a circulation of more than 5 million in perhaps 40 languages. My father, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, all of his life had said our enemy is a coming United States of Europe at the helm of a United States of Europe will be Germany I can even imitate his voice I can hear him saying it thousands of times he said it his magazine the one he started the one my mom cranked out on a mimeograph the one I inserted the little sheets in to keep the ink from spreading that grew to become A giant magazine, larger than many, to which you subscribe. In its January 1990 issue, its new editor-in-chief, with his picture up in the corner, standing in front of the books, had a personal. The personal was entitled, No Magic Words. He said there are no magic words to Christianity. That reminds me of Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, of how they came to the cave and said, open sesame. But there are no shortcuts. There are no magic words. And then merely had this fluffy, nice little pablum, this gentle little article about just live a Christian life. There are no shortcuts. There were several articles in there about family, other doctrinal matters. on its cover was the rich blue and the circles of the flag of the EC. And inside was one article by Ronald Kelly, who had interviewed one of the von Habsburgs, who was a member of the EC Council in Strasbourg. The grand smash finale at the end of that article, which said not one word about a united Germany becoming an enemy of the United States, said not one word about the great tribulation of the day of the Lord. Not one word about the plagues coming upon our people. Not one word even identifying us or warning us about what was going to happen. Just talked blandly about the potential of a united Europe. The great warning, the last paragraph of a little one-and-one-half-page article was, and I quote, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. If my father would have been alive at the time that publication had come out, he would have fired the entire plain truth staff, and he would have fired every one of those ministers that had a thing to do with it. And you that knew him know I speak the truth. That should have been the crowning moment, that magazine, of more than 45 years of witness and warning to say, I told you this was going to happen. That magazine should have been that thick. It should have had 497 such quotations. It should have reprinted whole articles from back through the years where my dad warned about what was going to happen in world conditions. It whispered that maybe a United Europe would come along, but except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Today, in this work of God, we spend seventeen nineteen twenty two twenty five thirty fifty dollars to get one person to respond to my television program pick up the telephone and call and get some free literature and unless they respond again to my third-class letter that's the last we ever hear from them they don't get a monthly publication because every one of these issues costs fifty thousand dollars we can't afford it Isn't that pitiful? I say that we need a magazine, and in my plans, hopes and dreams, if you want to put them in that category, are that eventually we shall have this magazine with this kind of a cover, with this kind of quality, with this kind of articles, in at least one home in every square block of the United States of America that eventually we will be on 500 television stations and that the voice that was responsible for drawing to and building perhaps 85% of the membership of the parent organization with the same old studio Bible falling apart, with the very same message that has never deviated, will be once again heard by the likes of Rockefeller, Bob Dole, Cyrus Vance, and the President of the United States. When I walked up and shook hands, left hand, because I know his right hand is crippled, with Senator Bob Dole. He said, I thought I saw you in the audience. When I met Cyrus Vance, who was Secretary of State, Nelson Rockefeller, before he deceased, of course, and Hubert Humphrey, same comment, they said, I really enjoy your program. When I sat on the front lawn with Lyndon Johnson, he said, I watch your program all the time, and I watched it while I was in the Oval Office. Agreed with you most of the time. That was his comment. We are not destined to do a little work in the East Texas woods like a whisper with a cork in the neck of the bottle that is only being heard by a tiny few. This work, whether people want to make snide comments, there he goes, building buildings. Next thing you know, he's going to build a college. This work is going to grow very large. As the parent organization moves more and more into anonymity as it adopts and embraces false doctrine, as it discards its tang, its savor, its flavor. Like the salt that has lost its flavor, what good is it? Wherewith shall it be salted? As it is losing its spears thrust, its point, it is losing its witness and its warning capability, saying, I'm already born again. Reinvestigating the Trinity, moving more and more, say other publications, toward the mainstream, representative of theirs on television talk shows saying all of our doctrines are up for reassessment or words to that effect. Nothing is sacrosanct. In this church, God's word and God's doctrines are sacrosanct and nothing is going to be changed without all of us in unanimity over a long period of time under careful study and prayer realizing we had been wrong in some little particular other and that's not going to be because some amateur theologian decided to get some little hook to say I need to reap a harvest from some of these sheep and get them blatting and following away after me because he's found something about the calendar or some other little thing that he thinks he can raise a group to support him with we need to clearly identify our enemy I mentioned last Sabbath that in the Gulf War, the first tragic loss of life was due to friendly fire. And I merely drew the analogy of how often that is true, that sometimes friendly dragons, a chapter of a book Mr. Rondart recommended that we read and preached about one time, that really have all the best intentions about just tweaking things and changing things and altering things and getting things done in their way rather than somebody else's way, can create furores like you wouldn't believe, and that sometimes we find ourselves receiving incoming friendly fire. But it can hurt, it can kill, it can injure, it can wound. doesn't matter who shoots the bullet, if you receive it, you're dead. That friendly fire killed people. And those bullets, even from friends, can maim and injure and hurt. I want our local churches to be glittering, gleaming examples of magnetic, charming, happy, dedicated, converted, zealous human beings who every, th- every single Sabbath get up when they put on those Sabbath clothes and shower and get ready to go to church think maybe there'll be somebody new there today. Maybe I can walk up with my presence and I can have an influence on that person. Maybe I can show them what kind of a church we are. Maybe by my home and my coffee table with my literature on it I can be a little one-woman or one-man display center for the work of God. Maybe in my lunch place. If I carry a copy of 20th Century Watch or a booklet, my lunch pail. And sit out there in the middle of the day with other workmen around. I've read the booklet before, but I'll just read it in front of these guys and see if somebody comes by and says, what are you reading? Give me an inroad. Give me an opportunity to talk to somebody about my faith, about what I believe. I have challenged God's church in the past if one of you with even a distant family member, a man on the job, a woman you know in the shopping center, were to be used by the magnetic influence you can become as a dynamo of activity, of attractiveness, of God's Holy Spirit shining forth from your face and in your words and deeds to attract someone to the kind of a person you are, and you could actually be responsible for them eventually visiting your church, your local congregation. Come on down there and hear what my ministers has got to say. It won't hurt you. Keep your own sovereignty intact. Keep all your doctrines you believe. Don't worry about it. You don't give away anything. Come on down there and listen to this man. It's going to be exciting today. Besides that, we got a potluck. People always come for potluck. We always have the biggest biggest Sabbath meeting when they got a chili cook-off. You can't believe the people we get. When it's eating time, we have a big crowd, folks. So you guys have more potlucks doesn't cost much people come I talked about last Sabbath and I want to just briefly rehearse it a little lecture I gave to our TV crew one time years ago where I drew the analogy of a little scene out of the movie Cinderella where Cinderella had to hurry and get the old castle swept in time to go to the ball but how the little birds and the animals even helped and the squirrels and the rabbits and the birds were flying around and taking things that had been washed by the rabbit and hanging it on the horns of the deer to dry out. And it was a scene that only, only Disney could have created. It was a beautiful, happy little scene. They were all dancing around. I'd love to, to see that scene again sometime just to refresh my memory about it. And I had imagined that in an institution named after God, it should be, should it not, the happiest place to live and work on the face of the earth. It ought to be a place without rancor, without jealousy, without bitterness, without politics, without strife, without hatred. It ought to be a happy place, a happy, wonderful environment in which to live and work. The church of God must be a happy church filled with those qualities we read of in 1 Corinthians 13 of love that is not easily provoked and suffers long, is always kind, vaunteth not itself. But this church is not going to grow because some anonymous people die and send us their estate. It is not going to grow because, magically, more and more money begins to come in and I just get on a few more TV, little by little. How many years of prime activity have I got left? I'm 61. 10, 12, 15? How many years does God wish to use me in that capacity? Are there others to come along to be used also in similar capacities? This church is going to grow in the same way that that old song illustrated that we used to sing years ago. Give me some men who are stout hearted men, and I'll soon give you 10,000 more. Because every single one of us can become a nucleus an attractive nucleus around which things happen and things grow. Mr. John Pinkston was telling us today in the class that just since my campaign down in Atlanta about a year or so ago, a year ago, April, I think you said, that he has more than doubled in size, in attendance. We're coming back there fairly soon then, John, wherever you're sitting, and we'll have another campaign, God willing, and maybe it'll double again. We need to have more campaigns, not less. We had to sell our airplane financially, it was just the thing to do at that time. I don't have the ability to do what I once had the ability to do. We made some money on it and we needed the money very, very badly because of other things that need to be done. We desperately need to have a monthly magazine that people don't throw away that remains around in their home with provocative, challenging, interesting, exciting articles. Articles about prophecy, about baptism, God's Holy Spirit, about the soul, heaven, and hell, and Israel, and Germany, and all of these factors, all of these things that people will read without having to respond to me every single time I write a third-class letter before they get anything else in the form of a sermon tape or a piece of literature. But it costs money. In Ezekiel 33rd chapter, we see an example of of what is happening out there that is so much like the people that talked about nutty Noah those that dwelt in the shadow of the ark in verse 31 they come unto thee as the people cometh and they sit before thee as my people and they hear thy words but they will not do them for with their mouth they show much love but their heart goes after their covetousness and lo you are unto them is a very lovely song of one that has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do them not. Out of every thousand people that hear and view on television, there may be one, there may be less than that, it may be one out of 2,000, I don't know, who pick up the phone and call. Out of those, 17 to 22 percent respond again. Think of that. Isn't that sad? Now that shows how vast an audience you must reach in order to save a few, in order for a few to become converted and become members of God's church. It is a vast project. We had a survey some years ago. I put those papers in my file in the office and I never got around to doing what I had wanted to do with them. But I had asked people at the Feast of Tabernacles, go home to your local community and just go down through your phone book and call maybe 10 people. Call anonymously and say to them, I'm taking a survey. Would you mind answering just a couple of quick questions? Who do you believe is the most important enemy of the United States? Ninety-some percent of them said Russia. Two or three said Iran. One clever chap said the United States is, or our own worst enemy. I don't know if one said. Germany at the helm of the United States of Europe. So, how effective has that witness and warning been in these last 14 years? How effective are those men, some of whom were my students? I thought I'd taught them to speak better than that, but I can't help it now. That are on that television program dry, staid, dull. They're reading a teleprompter, reading a script. I wouldn't know how. I haven't the faintest idea how to how to look down and read or look up and read words rolling by in front of me. I just look into a black lens, see a little bit of my own reflection dimly, and talk like I'm talking to thousands of people. But be that as it may, the point, the thrust, the witness, the warning, the tang, the poignancy, the salt is gone from that church's message. And little by little, brethren, I have to tell you officially from this pulpit in the name of Christ. Some of the most important truths of God, including the meaning and the significance of the stripes of Christ, are also being abandoned by that church. They are turning their back on much of what my father taught, what he gave his life, what my mom and dad labored for 45, 50 years together to achieve, is being sold for pottage, given away, discarded, and abandoned. If I did not believe in the work that I am doing, I would long ago have taken up an offer that was given to me of syndicated television and been doing something else. But as I expressed to the brethren in there today and their wives, I have a kind of a complex. I wonder that if the gift that God has given me of speaking would be denied me and taken from me if I ever tried to use it for a commercial purpose. That's just a thought in the back of my head. Perhaps I too have a Jonah complex, but I feel that I must do what I've got to do. I mentioned then that God grouped prophets around Israel's impending captivity and Judah's impending captivity, and we see here in Ezekiel's case that he had said, and I want to go back and turn to just one verse in chapter 33 and verse 11, because I missed that in going over to verse 33. Say unto them, As I live, says the Lord Eternal, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, God is not vindictive, he does not want people to suffer, but that the wicked turn from his way, and his way is what is bringing on AIDS and muscular dystrophy and multiple sclerosis and cancer and strokes and heart disease and, of course, desertions and abandonments and kidnapping and robbery and rape and muggery and murder and homosexuality and violence of every kind. His way of life is reaping what you see happening in the world all around you today. This crime-ridden nation, 23,000 human beings dying every year as a result of a gunshot wound, many of them members of the same family, members of the same group, who personally know one another. And much of it revolving around what? Drugs. Because day-to-day life is so wretched in so many parts of our civilization and our society that people want to alter their perceptions, so they want to ingest some substance to just get them to drifting away in euphoria because they can't tackle plain old day-to-day living. Why will you die, O Israel? Turn from your way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? that's the message and yet they say that was sure a lovely message he sure got a good voice people come up to me time and again a personal appearance campaigns after all i will say about the sabbath about the church i'll start a campaign by saying before you will ever be in the kingdom of god you're going to be a member of the same church i am i like to just get a mad sometimes i start telling them about mrs runcorn the Sabbath, and how my mother was brought to the Sabbath, and how angry my father was about it. I will challenge them. Sure enough, someone will come up to me, well, I'm, uh, I'm not of your faith, but I sure enjoyed the message. I think about this scripture, got a pleasant voice, play well on in an instrument, good performance. Attaboy, Garner Ted, give it to him. Of course, you don't mean me, it's just going right by me, give it to those other folks. boy Garner, Ted, get them out there. But we Baptists, we Methodists, we Episcopalians, we know all that stuff. We don't need all of that. Besides, if you want to know how to pronounce God's name, it's in Psalm 83. I happen to be a Jehovah's Witness. One lady told me, oh, okay. Well, you can have them sitting in there, and you can go all the way through some of the most important doctrines of the Word of God and prove it and nail it down so that a child of 8 or 10 or 12 could see it, and they'll walk up to you as if they hadn't heard a word you said, and congratulate you on your performance. It comes to pass, doesn't it? In Acts, the first chapter, I won't turn to that and read it. Jesus Christ of Nazareth said, You shall be witnesses unto me. So today there are not prophets going to the leaders of the nation warning Israel of impending captivity. But there is a ministry of God's church, which is a spiritual living organism of those in whom is God's spirit. If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. It says in Romans 8 and verse 9. And by one spirit are we baptized into one body. It says in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. If you have the Holy Spirit of God, you're a member of God's church. You receive the Holy Spirit of God because you repent of sin. And you know what sin is. And you then undergo the ritual of baptism that figuratively costs your life, brings about a figurative resurrection, washes away your sins in the waters of baptism, gives you the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands, and begets in you a brand new spirit creature in Christ that when it reaches maturity will be born of God and enter into the kingdom of God. The job we have to do is many faceted. It is not a simple job, or I would simply cut out some segments of old tires, strap them to my knees, put a sign on my back, and walk on my knees to the White House, gaining notoriety and publicity on the way. In my case, I wouldn't make it to the White House where Charlie Gross lives, which is only over about 30 miles, at my age on my knees, but you hear what I'm saying. People have done things like farmers getting their tractors and having a demonstration advance on Washington. They've had big demonstrations in the Capitol Mall. People have decided to walk for this or run for that or ride a bicycle for the other thing. I could get the attention of just one leader. But Christ said we must do more than that. Jesus Christ said teach them everything I have taught you. And he said preach to them in his name, baptizing them that believe, because God is interested, as Christ said, lift up your eyes, for the fields are already white with harvest. And God is interested in begetting and renewing and, in a sense, enlarging, if you will, his own family. God loves mankind. I don't know how a mother of eleven has enough love to go around. You talk to a mother of 11 and find out. Sure she does. A mother of 40 would have enough to go around. A mother of 100 would have enough love to go around. She would love them all equally. Think of that someday, of how God looks upon his children on this earth, almost without number, billions of us. And the Apostle Paul said, I became all things to all men that I might by all means save some. We're in a witness and warning work. The witness is of Christ and his sufferings, his lonely sacrifice of which I preached at a couple of pieces of tabernacles, and the warning is that this society is on its way down and out. I am not going to ring any alarm bells like we did back in the 1960s with imagined 19-year time cycles and place dates and put settings on world conditions that appear to be especially ominous. We may have until 2004 before our house of cards called the United States comes crashing in upon us. But I know we must continue to do God's work. It must be a work of invitation as well as a witness and a warning, a work inviting people to repent and be baptized and receive Jesus Christ. But it is a work that no one else is doing. It's not just another work doing the same thing. Compare. Next time, if you live in a place where the world tomorrow is on television, and i'm on television listen to them first and then listen to me and compare next time you come across the plain truth dig out this I wish we could pr- produce it every month better yet if you know somebody that's got the january nineteen ninety copy get that one and see whether i told you the truth or not a minute ago and imagine in your own mind what my father would have said about that issue of the plain truth magazine well brethren i believe that this dedication of this building is one major step forward for the Church of God International. I believe it is going to be a significant moment which is going to bring about additional growth. I believe it's like pressing down on an accelerator and that God's work is going to speed up. I'm very encouraged by you young men and others who are in the classes that are here, when I hear some of you talking about your background, look at your education, look at your age, and imagine in my mind what God may have in store for you. Let me tell you, God doesn't need egoists. He doesn't need people who covet the pulpit because of vanity, but he certainly needs converted, humble, dedicated servants of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to serve these, help these, your brethren and people like them all around this country and around the world. This church is destined to grow large. We may eventually remember this as an historic date of a real rough raw beginning of something that eventually is going to reach into hundreds of thousands of members and literally is going to become a work which is going to rock the United States back on its heels and come to the attention of Congress and the President of the United States. I told many years ago of a recurring dream that I had. Many of you have heard that, and I won't belabor all of it, except to say that when I was preaching on a hillside in Colorado beneath a little army tent, I told of that dream then, and I was as yet unordained. That happened at Pentecost in 1954, and somehow vividly I was before the Congress of the United States of America, and they were challenging me on what I had been preaching. It was like I was on trial, and I stood there before all of those dignified members of our government, and I said to them with my voice rising in crescendo, If I be a man of God, then let this building shake!" And? People in the tent, like you in this building, as the microphone fell from the stand, came up to me afterward and said, "Gonner Ted, I I think I felt the ground shake. They didn't really. Now that's probably just an idle dream. I don't know that that will ever occur. But it's a good dream because it means that at the last moment of my life I will still be preaching the word of God. God bless his holy name and praise our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father for this building, for your church, for each other. God bless you all.